welcome to a Mighty Blaze podcast, part of the Writer's Bone Podcast Network. I'm your host, Trisha Blanchett. A Mighty Blaze is your online and audio destination for the very best interviews with blockbuster authors, debut writers, and everyone in between. Laura Zygmunt's novel, Animal Husbandry, became a bestseller when it came out in 2012 and her wryly funny follow-up, Separation Anxiety, was also the talk of the literary town in 2020. Now she's back with a new release, Small World, about two adult sisters who finally face the trauma of their childhood when they move in together after dual divorces. Laura visited A Mighty Blaze to talk books with fellow best-selling author and Mighty Blaze co-founder, Caroline Levitt. The two writers delved into the motivations behind Laura's latest novel, the source of what Laura calls her secret anger, how our sense of reward changes as we age, and why novels are some of the best ways to get a peek inside others' lives. So settle in and enjoy the conversation as I pass the blaze torch to Caroline and her insightful guest, Laura Zygmunt. Hi, I'm Caroline Levin. I'm the co-founder of Mighty Blaze, the book initiative that began just when the Stuart pandemic began. And Jenna Blum and I started it to help independent bookstores whose doors were shuttered by the pandemic, authors whose tours were canceled, including mine, and readers who just want to have some relationship with with writers and I also want to tell everybody that this Monday the blaze is actually having an online party on Tuesday for uh, you will see the advertisements up um, I put a there's something else up there so you can join and there's going to be swag and prizes so do come so today we have a book small world by Laura Zygman. And this book is racking up a huge amount of raves. The Washington Post says the novel is as poignant and it is funny, as thought-provoking as it is witty and searingly relatable. The Minneapolis Star Tribune says Zygman's tenderly told novel is a realistic rendering of what it's like to care for and love a disabled child and the toll that that love takes on parents and siblings. It's also about the bonds that sisters share and how, in the case of the Mellishmans, unresolved grief nearly breaks them, but it's laced with the promise of a brighter future. And the New York Times book review says a graceful swan dive into the question of how a family rearranges itself after the death of a child. Um, In Sigmund's entrancing latest, two sisters confront the childhood death of their middle sister, Eleanor. Lydia and her sister were neglected by their parents because they had to focus on their sister, Eleanor, who was severely disabled and who died from the flu at 10. This propelled the mother, Louise, into working for children with special needs and into perhaps working for the children more than she was paying attention to her own living kids. Um, So it's, it's actually an amazing book about what we do and don't do for love in a lot of ways. So my, so first of all, I want to welcome you, Laura. I'm thrilled to have you here. Love your book. We all love you at the blaze. We're all excited to have you here. What was haunting you into writing this book? Tell us the origin story. 
Well, Caroline, I'm really happy to be here. And I love the blaze too. And I love your, I love you too. Um, I felt like this was one of those stories that I had wanted to, to tell my whole life. I think we all have a story that we feel we need to tell if, if both because we feel it will explain us to other people and will in the telling of it, we'll know ourselves more. And I always wanted to tap the, our real family story, which is that I, I had a sister who died when she was seven and I was three and my older sister was five. So we, my sister Linda and I who lives in California. We grew up in a family that had lost a child before we were really aware of it. We were so young. She didn't really live with us very long. And so it wasn't, we didn't feel it was our loss. It was our parents' loss and, and it changed them forever as it, as of course it does. And I thought at, at one point I might try to write it as a memoir, but I, I tried that and, and wrote a whole bunch of stuff, but it just didn't seem like enough for, for to carry its own story um, in that straightforward memoir way. So I, you know, eventually when I started this book, um, I thought it would be a really comical book about two sisters who move in together <laughs> as adults. You know, they're both divorced, no kids. And oh, they're, they're living together. One sister moves back from the West Coast and moves into her sister's Cambridge apartment. And um, how funny would that be? You know, like sisters at that at, at our age, sometimes we don't really know each other and right. um, we think we're mature. And then we were together for five seconds and we're at each other's throats and we regress. And so I thought this would be so funny. Um, and then as I started to write it, I realized it was the perfect setup um, to explore this other thing. And I, and I was able to use some of the material I had written, very fictionalized, because obviously the story that you summarize so well is, is that Eleanor, their middle sister in the, in the novel, Eleanor lives at home for almost all of her 10 years, nine of her 10 years. And then she's institutionalized only for one year. And it's after that one year, she, she gets the flu and she dies um, at Fernald, which we'll talk about in a minute, but. Um, right. <laughs> and um, so it was very different from my upbringing, you know, and I wanted to really explore what that's like, because I feel too, you know, as parents, if we, if we are parents, we always feel even if we're doing a good job, we, we're failing in some I'm other way. Doing, I know. Someone's always going to lose. Um, and when you're dealing with a special needs child or the grief of a death of a child, um, you know, you're doing your, most people are just absolutely doing their best. They're focused on the, on the child that needs the most help. And the well children, as they're called now, there's a term called well child syndrome. And those oh. are the children who are well. This did, there was no term like this when I was growing up, but this is- I'm Not me either. Like, um, and then the other children who are okay um, kind of have to fend for themselves because so much of the parents' attention is understandably so focused on the child with needs. And so, but ki all kids have needs. And, you know, even if your parents are doing their best, um, especially in this case, Louise was completely devoted to Eleanor and the concept of inclusion. She wanted her included in everything. Um, and she was a disability advocate. And, and before Eleanor died, she, she was an advocate too. But after she died, she became much more of an advocate too. And so the irony, of course, is that she was fighting for inclusion for Eleanor while the other two were sort of oh, ex no. so. excluded. This is totally fascinating because what you actually did so brilliantly was you sort of took one of your own 
traumas, which maybe you hadn't explored that much. And because you hadn't explored it because you were so little and your sister wasn't living at home. But what you did is you created a situation where you could explore it and where you could, you, you know, as writers, when we're writing, we're living that and we're feeling that. So therefore, in order to heal, you, you re-remembered almost your own trauma through this person, Eleanor, which, you know, that's what every writer hopes to do. And you did that brilliantly. So I wanted to ask is when you were doing that, did any of those old feelings that you yourself had sort of bubble to the surface and you thought, oh, I have to deal with this now? You know, I felt like I had, um, yes. And I, um, and yet I also felt like because I was fictionalizing it so much, I mean, it was tapping into all the feelings. Um, and some of those feelings were that my whole life, um, and I'll only speak for myself, not for my sister, but my whole life, I really felt like not, I didn't feel entitled to my feelings because I felt sorry for my parents. I felt like they had been, you know, sad and they had experienced this loss. And how can you blame them? You know, how can you blame people? And so when you're the child growing up in that kind of situation, and there are far worse situations. Right. You know, we're talking about an emotional feeling of benign neglect, really. Um, and it was the 70s. So there was benign neglect. Or neglect. Right. Everybody. We all know the jokes, you know, no seatbelts, no everything. Right. But, um, so uh, most of my life, I felt, I think, a, a really kind of secret anger. And it's funny because I, you know, I lived in, I, you know, I, I came from Boston and then I moved to New York and D.C. And then I ended up coming back to Newton where I grew up. It was kind of like not planned that I would move back. But I had so much time to explore the institution where my sister lived, Fernald, which was this um, institution right. in Waltham, Mass, and which is in the book um, where Eleanor is, is for one year. I had so many years from 2001, for years I could have driven over there. My parents were alive. I could have asked them questions, but I was so defiant, like privately defiant. I was like, no, you know, I've spent my life living in the shadow of this thing. I'm not going over there. I'm not, I'm not interested. I'm so nosy about everything. I will Google anything within an inch of his life. But yet I never, <laughs> went, I never drove over there until I think it was 2015. And they had already shut it down. And I got in, I got onto the campus, if you will, if you can call it that anymore. And it was all shut down. It was in the process of being really shuttered. So now it looks like an abandoned, you know, terrifying. But at the time it was just shut down. And I was so upset that I couldn't go into the buildings. I had waited too long, but that's like, you know, you're only ready when you're ready. And I, my, both my parents were gone. So there were all these questions I had that I couldn't ask. And so fiction was the perfect way to explore those things. Cause there's a lot of scenes in the book. I mean, there's one set in a amusement park that never happened. I mean, you know, our sister was gone and we never took her to the amusement park, um, but we went there every summer. And so I, I, it was easy to, just you know you know what it's like i mean you can just draw on yeah 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 entirely fictional scene of what it would have been like what would it have been like and the parents in the book are very different from my parents and um but the emotional feelings all that stuff is really real it's right there great to it's so visceral. Um, I just want to stop to tell everybody out there listening, please post your comments in the questions, comments in the comments section, and we'll get to it. And also go to bookshop.org or your favorite indie and buy Laura Zygmunt's book, Small World. And actually, while you're there, 
why not pick up all of her books? Because they're all wonderful. Okay, so back to this. I wanted to talk a little bit more about the portrait of Eleanor because I feel like she's so vivid on the page. I wanted to know, how did you go about crafting such an extraordinary portrait of her? Did you do research or did it just sort of flow out? Tell us about that process. Yeah, I mean, it was hard because my first draft, I think, there wasn't much detail to her. My editor read it and just said, she's there, but she's not there. You know, you need to okay. give her something. You need to give her as much of something that someone who doesn't, who is really not verbal and doesn't speak. And, um, you know, you need to give her, they have to connect with her in some way. That's not just like, she's just, in a, you know, she's here. She's right. There. Right. That was really right. I did some research and I also just, I mean, I've known a lot of people with, kids who have various I mean I grew up around it because after my sister died in 1965 my parents really stayed in that community the Fernald community and most of their friends were in our lives for a really long time because their kids grew up I mean they were in their 20s at the time they you know they they were and they grew up they lived probably into their 60s and so we we remained in that community so I was very used to seeing all kinds of people and and I was very comfortable around people with with disabilities and, and various things. So I I just use my imagination either from memory or and I, I did of course do some research. But um, you know, disabilities vary so much that you can really almost make up what you how you want it to be. And um, you know, in this case, I've known I've known enough to, to, to know that it felt right. It felt right enough. But you never it know. It felt exactly right. Also, the whole thing about what it's like to to lose a child was it was exactly right. It was it just felt so right there. And I think that I don't know. As I was reading it, I I had this one thought where I thought, Oh my God, Eleanor is giving Laura permission to write this. It just felt like you tapped into something, um, which was kind of extraordinary. Yeah. So I just wanted to, I want to talk a little bit more about Fernal because you and I spoke about it before because um, I had actually worked there when I was in high school and it was a terrifying, disastrous, horrific place. And when you called me to ask about it, I remember I got that same feeling of just visceral terror. Like, I oh. Like, what a place. Did you, were you able to speak to any people who had, been at Fernal or parents of people who had put kids there. Yeah, it's funny, you know, um, that was its reputation and it certainly was real. I mean, you're right. I mean, you worked there, you saw it from the inside. Um, when my sister was there from probably 1960 to 65, she was in a medical building, which was a little bit okay. different than okay. perhaps the other buildings and much later on. However, um, and my parents always spoke very hot, you know, they visited very frequently. They were very friendly with the nurses. They always had just only compliments for the care she got. Um, and she, and again, she was in a medical building. She had a, a very rare medical condition. Right. Um, so that was different, but it's funny when I got your name, I mean, of course I knew you, but I never knew you worked at Fernald. And when I started to really dig into this topic, <laughs> I got to know somebody in Boston. His name is Alex Green and he teaches at- Alex um, Green, he's at, great. Harvard Kennedy School, and he he writes for the you know writes for the Globe and everything, and um, he's actually at work on a biography, big biography of Walter E. Fernald. But we got to be very friendly, and he put me in touch with you, and then he also put me in touch with a guy named Bob Coleman, 
who's given many interviews, so I'm not saying anything that he wouldn't hasn't already said publicly, but he put me in touch with Bob and we had a phone conversation. The most incredible thing was Bob came from a big family and one of his brothers had, um, was, re as the parlance of the day, re he was retarded. Um, that's the term that was used That's back then. what they called them. Yeah, developmentally disabled. And so so his right. brother was at and his brother was in the same building as my sister Cheryl was. Wow. And so he knew exactly the same, almost the same years that she was, I mean, it was uncanny to be able to speak to someone who went, went, went and visited. And so I asked him a million questions, but I mean, and he's given many interviews and one of the really amazing visuals that he told me was, you know, I said, what was it like when you visited? And he described how they would drive over on Sunday afternoons and the mom, you know, they have a station wagon full of kids and the mom would go up into the building and they would all stay in the car. And then she would bring their brother over to the big, there was a big window, big one of those giant windows. And she would bring the brother over to the window and they'd wave down to the car. And then she'd finish her visit and she'd come down and the father would go up. And that's how they visited. And of course, as he got older and when the weather was better and everything, they would meet outside and he lived in different buildings after that. But it was just incredible to meet someone who's- It's incredible. Yeah, it's still, that place is still potent. I mean, I used to go back to when my mom was alive, she lived right near Fernal. And every time we would drive past, you know, you still look at it and think about, well, what happened there and what happened to those people and how yeah. are they now? Okay, so let's turn to some humor. Let's talk about the hilarious online site, Small World, and what Joyce is doing there and why. And if you do that yourself in some way. Uh, of course I do. <laughs> so Small World is the sort of next door site. I think we all know what next door is. It's that neighborhood yeah, site. Yeah, that yeah. And um, a friend of mine, it's, you know, I totally stole the idea, a friend of mine, used to do this. He would take posts from um, his listserv who lives in Baltimore and he would just cut the, the little paragraph into poems and post them on Facebook and just be like, you know, and, every, and it was brilliant and I loved them and I, I ended up not knowing how it would fit into the story, but I had Joyce become really obsessed with Small World, which is, the, which is their version <laughs> of, um, of a neighborhood site. And she just goes down the rabbit hole all the time because it's it's the perfect way for her to sort of, you know, engage because all those posts are like people having little problems and issues right. and questions. And it's a way to sort of engage if you're lonely also with other people without <laughs> having to go outside, you know. So you post and then someone answers you. And then sometimes there's a whole thread and people and fights and you know, like that. But and it's deep can be deeply annoying. But she loves these, like there's lost cats and there's you know, bad turkeys, stay away from the street, the turkeys are here, so who stole my avocados, there's all that stuff. And those are really funny to, you know, I, I spent a lot of time scrolling next to her because <laughs> as you know, as a writer, there's nothing better than procrastinating. There's nothing better, that's right. <laughs> so whenever I was stuck on the plot, I would just go, oh, I can, I can look at next door. So I still get the next, I still look, you know, in case I ever need them. But I, um, I spent a lot of time and I had all these different topics, you know, lost this and, you know, this and that. And then there, what really surprised me on the site, though, is that there were so many posts that really had no issue. They were just people writing these really long messages that lonely, you know, they're lonely. Oh, um, yeah. Yes. And they 
these walks in the neighborhood and they would write these really long things. And so my first draft of the novel used the actual post from next door. Actually, I didn't change a word, you know, and I sent the manuscript in and my editor was like, oh, love, love the poems. And I said, I love the poems too. And then she was like, um, and I said, yeah, they're word for word from next door, which I, I just was so proud of because I felt like the verisimilitude of like, these are real. I didn't change a word. Look how funny. And she was like, I do that. And I was like, oh. I was going to say, yeah. Oh, of course I can't. Yeah. But so I changed. I mean, I had to sort but of. But they're hilarious. They're absolutely hilarious. And, yeah. and well, I have another question about Small World, but before that, I have to I have to circle back to it's sort of the same thing where we were talking about this before we got on. You used to run this hilarious series called Annoying Questions that people should look up because it was sort of real things that people would say. Often it was with writers, where the writer would be sitting there and somebody would say, I've, I don't think I've ever heard of you. Do you really write books? Or or I know you said you were reviewed in the New York Times, but do you mean the New York Times in New York? Or is it someplace else? And it goes on with this sort of deadpan conversation. It's hilarious, hilarious, hilarious. So I wonder if you could, this seems to hook into the whole thing with the small word small words kind of stuff. I wonder if this means that you're probably just an intrepid eavesdropper as well, Absolutely. right? So nosy. nosy That's so what nosy. I got. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Because I, there's a lot of humor in what people say to you and what they ask. And there's no sort of realization that what they ask might be deeply offensive or, <laughs> or, or prov <laughs> provocative. But anyway, yeah. I urge everybody to go and look it up on YouTube. It's really funny. We'll be right back after this word from our sponsor. Hey folks, this is Daniel Paisner, host of As Told To, the ghostwriting podcast available here on the Writer's Bone Podcast Network and wherever podcasts are sold. We feature long-form conversations with ghostwriters and collaborators of all sizes and stripes, taking what we hope is a meaningful look at the making and shaping of some of our best-selling memoirs and autobiographies, with a focus on craft and process and whatnot. Actually, often a whole lot of whatnot. In the beginning, we set out to talk to some of publishing's top ghostwriters, but we've expanded the conceit of the show to include songwriters, speechwriters, joke writers, dramatists, television writers, and pretty much anyone who writes in service of someone else's voice or vision. Everybody's got a story to tell, and sometimes it just works out that they need a little bit of help. As told to, the ghostwriting podcast. Join the conversation every other Tuesday here on the Writer's Bone Podcast Network. All right, back to small worlds. Beside the online site, 
I love the whole idea of the small world where, in fact, we're taking care of the sister Eleanor. They felt that their world was just small and contained. But actually, there was so much emotion in it that it was enlarged. And also in their in their adulthood, these sisters can also enlarge their worlds by facing their past. Um, am I just blowing steam or is that, no, is that part of your intent? I mean, I just had this feeling of... Their worlds are, are so much bigger now and so yeah. much better. Yeah. Well, they're stuck, you know. I mean, it was not a COVID. I wrote it during COVID, but it doesn't yeah. take place during COVID. But, you know, you get to a certain age. They're both, um, neither of them had kids. Neither Joyce nor Lydia had right. kids by, by design. They're both divorced. And so they, uh, and they're not really looking for love right now. They're just trying to get their, they're trying to figure out the rest of their lives. And they just happen to right. be stuck in the their same place. apartment yeah. Their place in the so, world. It's it's interesting to me too that Joyce is an archivist because what she's doing isn't just archiving the past of her sisters, both of them, but she's kind of trying to archive her own past and make sense of that. And what I was thinking that as she's doing that, as she's changing, the way she's thinking about her past is changing too, and in a way that changes the past too. Do you think that that's true? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great point because her job, she's an archivist for a company that, you know, when you find a whole bunch of stuff, you know, your family photos or films and you need to digitize the old movies or the, the video cassettes or, you know, the VHS stuff or institutions that have a whole collection of stuff, that, that's the company. And uh, so she specializes in like the family stuff. And so she's fascinated because coming from a sad family, um, right. she is fascinated and she sees other people's families and they're skiing and they're boating and they're doing all this right. stuff. It kind of resents the fact that they're, that they're so carefree and, and often very careless and, you know, they kind of court danger and, and they didn't, you know, she feels they didn't have the luxury in her family of doing stuff like that. You know, they had this child who had um, a really serious disability ser set of disabilities and, they had to be really careful and they, they weren't carefree, you know, and, you know, she's jealous in a way. So she, that is part of her, but she's always looking at other pe people's families. And I think, you know, I think we all grew up in our own bad way. I mean, some people have more sadness and less, you know, but I remember, you know, you kind of think your family's just the way families are. And then there's always a moment when you realize, Oh, not everyone grew up like this. You know, not everyone right. grew up like, death as being a topic of conversation. Like that's how I grew up, which is always so morose. I mean, whether it was, we were talking about, you know, Cheryl or someone else's, you know, we're also Jews. So, you know, a lot of, a lot of- A lot of that. That's a Jewish thing, definitely. That was in my family. Right. Um, but, um, yeah. Let's talk about that a little more because a lot of people have commented on how great it is that there was so much humor among the sorrow, which I also loved. So I wanted to know, is that is that your personal way of living to find something bright in the darkness to be able to continue? And if so, how do you do that? I mean, how do I would like directions to do that? Yeah, it's really hard because you know, you're trying to tell a story and you, you want to give it enough heft and depth, but you're also like, oh my God, is this so grim that no one's going to want to read it? And that was really hard because there were moments when I was writing the backstory stuff 
And I thought, you know, I don't know. I don't know if it's going to work because it might just be too much. It might just be too like, who wants to read this or who might, this might be too sad. Um, and, and then it was really fun to balance that with right. the sisters because they were so, you know, there was so much humor in it, even though that also gets serious too, because when you put yourself with a sibling, you can't help, you know, that initial um, politeness and that sense that you guys get along and then you have a shared history and some, you know, you laugh about the past. Uh -huh. And then it, it, it turns really quickly with most families. It gets, you know, if there's any pain and most families, there's some pain, there's some, some issues um, that, that resurface and you both regress. It can get really ugly, really fast. And um, it's all comes from like those real deep childhood wounds and, and right. it's, it's really common, but it happens and you're just like, you know, you're, you know, so I just love the idea that these two sisters, you know, we're going to come back together. They've never been that close. They've never really lived in the same place. They don't even really know each other that well. You know, they've, you know, they've seen each other over the years, but not, you know, not like when you live in the same place. Right. Right. So they're essentially strangers in a certain way. And then they have all this shit from their childhood that they've never quite gotten over in individually. And they've also never really talked about. And so, you know, there's this, fantasy we all have that we're going to be super close to our families and our siblings and, and yeah <laughs> and sometimes you know and sometimes it doesn't and sometimes you hit a rough right. spot you become close again so right it, it just um i wanted to really kind of show that um, you can hit that really rough spot and then you can also you know well, find you, you did it real you did it really beautifully and i i never thought of oh, this book is grim because not just because of the humor but because of the way the sisters were changing so it felt to me like they were earning yeah. the moments of grace you yeah. know it wasn't just given to them so you know somebody also mentioned in a review that what was wonderful was that the book was talking about the things that bring comfort and grace the unexpected things and i loved that and i wanted to know if you could talk about that for a little bit yeah i I feel like, you know, I turned 60 this summer and I, I still can't quite believe that I am, but I feel like, you know, when you get to be a certain age and I mean, I've been, I've sort of felt this way for a while, but especially now, like what feels like a reward and a gift is very different than what felt like a reward and a gift, right. you know, when I was 30 right. or 40, you know, you have a whole different set of expectations and goals i mean now it's like by the time you're 60 you're so beaten down you've had so much failure you've had so much loss you've had so much you know good stuff but also just like so much stuff happens you know in over the years you get used to a certain like so that it's such a bomb the small things are so are so important i mean i don't want this and i don't want that and i don't but i you know but so what we really crave are those moments of like transformation when you can repair a relationship or deep in a relationship that was not deep before that you can right. come to your understanding and see the person who feels unseen and you feel seen by the person, you know, Lydia and Joyce were ignored really their entire childhood by their parents. I mean, you know, and you can, you know, you can say, well, it's not their fault, but that's how they felt. They felt unseen and invisible and they went through their lives that way. And they probably went through their marriages that way. And now they're together and they still feel that way. And they're at each other because, you know, who has more, you know, who's getting more attention or who's, who's, 
who's getting to know the people upstairs? Why are you getting to know the people upstairs? I'm jealous. Now I want to be, you know, it's, it's right, all right. <laughs> siblings like that who have that, that thing. And so if you can, if you can be generous to the other person, you know, because your tendency is just to be like, I hate you. Yes, yeah, that's like, true. You know, <laughs> I mean, you know, and now it's like, if you can just be generous and see what the other person is struggling with and they, and they can see, and then if you do it to them, they will do it to you. Most of the time. So is, is your sister also a writer? No, it's funny. She's a painter. So oh, she she's was, a painter. Okay. So it's still yeah, creative. Okay. A little bit similar to the book. She went to RISD. She's really talented. And then she left. She's same thing. She went to California and never came back and loves it there. That's she. And I'm, you know, happy she loved it there. But we, so we know we have never lived in the same coast since a long time ago. The part so, is like imagining what it would be like. Yeah. That's so interesting because I was going to ask you like why one sister was on California West coast and the other was the East yeah. coast. And now that makes perfect, absolute sense. Yeah. Tell us about you as a kid. When did you want to be a writer and what was that journey like? You know, I grew up in that kind of, time when like you know it was before computers it was before everything and I you know I I wanted to do a lot of things like I thought I wanted to be a doctor and then I you know then I hit the math thing can't do that and no. then I wanted to do this like, oh can't you know got terrible <laughs> my SATs can't be a lawyer and so I, you know, the only thing that I really felt like I could do was waitress and write those were my two things so I thought, well you know um so I went, you know I went to UMass and then I took the record publishing course like you know and then I went, I thought I would stay in, we all thought we were going to stay in Boston and all work at Little Brown, all of us, like the Mary Tyler Moore thing, like the 10 of us were Right, going to right. Throw your hat in the air. One job there, somebody got it. So everyone else went to New York and I followed and I, I ended up working in book publishing for 10 years. And I never went to New York thinking, I'm going to just get a little apartment and write. I was like, oh my God, I need a job. I always had a job, 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 a job, job with benefits. And then I wrote in my spare time because I never felt... And then I went to graduate school uh, for, I went for an MFA and I dropped out after two days. So that didn't work out. Came back. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Why did you drop out after two days? That's a story. Well, I you hated, hated it. it. I got Why? there and well, this is, you know, how things work, but I left New York and right before I left New York, I fell in love with somebody. And I was like, oh, oh perfect timing. Like I'm leaving New York and now I'm, you know, now I'm here, I just met this person. And so I moved to Boston because my MFA program was at BU and um, I, you know, we had this great love affair thing and then classes started and I just was like, I knew instantly, this is not for me. I mean, no offense. It just wasn't right for me. And I ended up, um, you know, telling everybody and they, and back then it was on the telephone. You actually had to call people on the real landline. Oh, and all God. My friends were like, oh, well, you know, give it some time. And I said, okay. And they said, you know, give it a semester. I was like, I'm giving it until Thursday. Which <laughs> I did. And I had two days and I left and then I came back to New York. And then the person I was in love with, who said he was in love with me, dumped me. And so that became, you know, animal husbandry basically was born from that experience, which I guess was worth it. But um, so that's hilarious. You know, really, I mean, I had written, I did the thing where like I would send stuff to New Yorker, rejection, would send stuff to Cosmopolitan, rejection. I never got really published. I got published once by gordon lish who was kind of this big figure in publishing but it led nowhere oh, like yeah. nothing ever led anywhere for me i mean even if i got one little thing nothing happened nothing happened nothing happened. so then wow. um i finally left new york after 10 years and i moved to dc and i got like a government job at the smithsonian i was home every day at 5 20 and i 
took out my novel. I had a draft of it and I, I revisited it and I was able to finish it, you know, redo it and finish it. And that, and I got really lucky because there, you know, it became like the very beginning of chick lit, even though I don't like that term. Um, it was really this, you know, a lot of women, you know, Jane Green, um, lots of people, um, Helen Field, and we were all writing, it's a collective consciousness. You know, women were getting married later. We were all right. working career, career gals and um, we were single. And so we were all kind of writing the same thing um, at the same time. Um, and, and that's, and of course they slapped the, the label on it, but so I just. Oh, labels are marketing decisions. Yeah, whatever. I just, whatever, yeah. whatever. Um, Ollie, do we have any questions for Laura? I have more questions if we know. Oh, great. If walking a mile in someone else's shoes means you can understand them, do you think writing a novel to interrogate other perspectives is as close as you can get? I mean, I think we're just all really curious. Um, and if you can, I mean, I don't know if I would say interrogate, but you know, you can really kind of look at other people's lives and try to understand them. Then, yeah, you know, you want to get inside someone else's life and see it from from their from their perspective. So, you know, this is sort of the inside of mine, just in you know a very fictionalized version. I feel like I knew this this story or this feel of this story so well, and I, and you know, it also was very clear to me that this was not a parent's story; it was a sibling story, which is very different. Right. I'm not a parent who lost a child thank God. And so I'm not telling that story. So I was tempted to show it to some people who had either lost a child or parents with special needs kids. And I thought, you know, it's not their, it's, it's actually a very different story. Like, right. It's a different story. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Yeah. That's actually an interesting thing when you're, when you're showing your work to other people, you have to be, this is for writers out there, you have to be really careful who you show it to. Like if you wrote a, I mean, I, I wrote a book about an open adoption, made the mistake of showing it to a person who had an adoption gone wrong and her comments were not, well, they weren't helpful at all. And they were also really debilitating for me. Yeah. So and I can understand. It's right. not right. Writers out there have to be really careful who you show it to. Right. You, can get, you can lose two years if you show it to Yeah, them. you can. That's yeah. right. That's exactly right. Um, Ali, another question. Any other movies or TV series coming from your books? Funny you should ask. Well, oh, great. Is, has been optioned for oh, television. So it was optioned um, and it was just renewed. The option was just renewed. So that's good news. Um, who knows if it will happen, but um, we hope. So it was optioned by the actress, the amazing actress, Julianne Nicholson, who's been in a million different things. She's from Boston and the company, the production company, Whip. So when they optioned it back um, in the beginning of 2021, in the cold gray January, like right now, um, they, you know, were telling us about what they're doing and everything. And, and, and I, we loved her. She's great. And she's so wonderful and like a normal person, actual normal person. And, um, and they said, <laughs> yeah, you know, we just finished this thing and it's going to be on HBO in a couple months. And we were like, yeah, great. And they said it was mayor of East town. And so I was writing it down like mayor of East town, you know, is that with two T's? And um, we had no idea that like two months later, mayor of East town was this, I think it was the biggest. Right, the, it was wonderful. Their, you know, whatever the, their metrics are, um, and so that's the team. It's it's Whip and Julian Nicholson. They were they did, you know, Maribyrnong Town, and and they're they're on for this. And so you know, we were very hopeful that great. something happens because you know she's so great, and um, they've hired a really great 
like director and a writer and that's all we know so that's wonderful that's wonderful yeah. more questions ollie can you tell us about your writing therapy business wow i didn't know you had one how did i, I miss do. it tell me. i do i have a, a little business called um talk therapy for your writing so it's for writers who wow. talk about the writing so i was blocked for over 10 years in a terrible writer's block and I wrote little things here and there, but nothing, I just couldn't write another novel. I was really, and I ghost wrote, but I couldn't write, really kind of write my own stuff. And I finally got through that block and wrote Separation Anxiety. And now I feel like I'm on the road, I'm back on the road. But I learned a lot, you know, and I feel like because of my experience, I worked in publishing for 10 years as a publicist. So I really know kind of the business of publishing. And as a writer, as a novelist, who was then blocked for so long, I know that side of things. And I was a ghostwriter, so I'm I really am very skilled at getting people, get extracting people's narratives out of them, and sort of seeing the picture. Like, tell me, tell me what you want to do. A lot of times, people have problem with plot. A lot of times, people have trouble. Either they're blocked, or they're halfway through a novel and they're stuck, or they um, are having an issue with their publisher or their agent. And they, there's very few people to talk to. I mean, you can complain to your friends. Um, right. which is your writer friends and they understand. Um, and, and you can talk to your therapist, but your therapist doesn't really like, I'm the writing that. therapist. So if you're having a problem, <laughs> you did talk, talk to me. So that's, you know, we can get to the issue and, and figure out how to move you forward in your work or, you know, help you just think through, do you, do you need another agent? Why? What are you, what are, what is not working for you? What are you looking for? You know, help you think through those pieces of the business parts that I understand you know really well from personal experience so it i love doing it i love i work with a lot of people sometimes it's one session sometimes it's once a week and people are have, you know we're all in the same boat we're all right. facing those challenges either with our own actual work or the business and you have to shut the business out while you're writing which is really hard right which is but really like, really hard to do what's the what's the website for that i i think my website's laurazigman.com oh it's laurazigman.com okay everybody should definitely yeah. visit that that's a, such a genius yeah, idea. by the hour you don't have to commit you don't have to buy a package you don't wow. have to like, I you love want a it. have a session you want more we'll do it again you know no pressure like I if you love want it. you know like that um and it's, that's, that's it's excellent. Really that's yeah. excellent. Do I we have a, we have time for one last question? Probably. Do we have one, Ali? Okay. Otherwise, then I ha I'll have my traditional question yeah. that I ask every time, which is, "What's obsessing you now, and why?" What's obsessing me now? Okay, so. You know, normally I would say like, you know, I'm still obsessed with next door and all that and uh, true crime. I'm actually obsessed. I don't have the book in front of me. I'm actually obsessed with this memoir. I'm, I'm actually going to see him tonight in Cambridge. So it's this memoir called um, Life on Delay, Making Peace with a Stutter. It's a memoir by John Hendrickson. And he's a- Oh, I just read about that. That looks so good. He wrote this big piece about Joe Biden's stutter back when Joe Biden was running for president and no one really knew he had a stutter. And right, John Henderson right. himself had a stutter and had never really admitted to himself that he had a stutter. He never Googled it, never this, never that, until he wrote this piece about Joe Biden. And the piece completely went viral. And he ended up going on MSNBC and doing a live interview um, with Stephanie Rule. And 
stuttered his way through it, of course. And it was the first time he actually had, anyway, people came from everywhere to write to him, stutterers who just were so moved by his piece. And he wrote back to all of them and he, it's a reported memoir. So it's partly his own story. And then he spoke to a lot of people, researchers and other people with stutters. And it's the, one of the most moving books. It's a beautiful memoir and he is doing these events. I implore you to go. I'm going, I can't wait. And I've watched them online, but the room is packed with people. A lot of stutters come and they ask questions and it's just the most moving thing because it's like, it's just an incredible, um, it's very moving. So I'm obsessed with that. I'm obsessed with the feeling created at those kinds of events. I think we are so hungry for compassion, empathy, compassion. And sense of just like this beautiful sense of like, wow, you know, it's so moving that I feel like he's doing this incredible thing. He's going across the country to do That's these incredible. And, That's and, incredible. Uh, so brave, you know, so brave. Okay, then. So first, I want to thank everybody who came up here. Please go to bookshop.org to buy Laura's books, or you can walk to your favorite books, indie bookstore and buy Laura's books. Don't forget that um, Mighty Blaze is having a party, uh, and everybody is invited. And it is, I had to look it up, it is on Monday, the 23rd. It's run, I think it's like 7 o'clock or so. You'll have to go to the Mighty Blaze page to see the actual invitation but there's swag there's presents there's surprises and everybody from the blaze is going to try to be there and act like the total lunatics we are so come okay and i also want to thank ollie our tremendous producer ollie martin thank you and most of all i want to thank laura zigman first for this gorgeous book small world by laura zigman and also just for this was a great interview i learned so much thank you so so much thank you caroline thanks for talking to me when i was researching it thanks ollie thanks oh, of course me. of course and i guess that's it well so we'll see you all next week thank you for joining us i'm trisha blanchett for a mighty blaze podcast my adventure fantasy novels, Herrick's End and Herrick's Lie, books one and two of the Neath Trilogy, are available now. Tune in next time for Season 8, Episode 10, featuring Zoe Sivak. Until then, keep your blaze burning and your pages turning.